You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 23. What are the things that people actually talk about at a venue? Really, we want to be able to answer, like, fill in the blank of this place has X, and where X is something that's very interesting uh, that we want to be able to surface to those users. And so X, most of the time, turns into a noun phrase. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. I love laying down the law and Bayesian statistics the last couple of weeks. Really dug deep in there, fighting the good fight. You know, I haven't been trolling for five-star reviews lately. I'm on episode 23 now. Prime number. It's a special occasion. It's also Amazon Prime Day, so that's, that's a coincidence. So if you're liking this show, uh, please go to iTunes or alternatively SoundCloud, Stitcher. Leave a five-star review. It's really helping me get this thing off the ground. It's a very easy thing you could do. Um, also looking forward to hearing your feedback and show ideas. Localmaxradio at gmail.com is where you send your letters, your correspondence, your thoughts. Great hearing from you. All right. So today we're going to talk about natural language processing, something that we call tastes in Foursquare, kind of the crown jewel of our recommendation engine and our approach to translation and getting city guide recommendations to work across borders, language, and uh, various cultures. So for those of you who haven't been listening to the other episodes, the Foursquare City Guide is the app that you can get on your smartphone, but also on the web at foursquare.com, where you can search for all of the best places worldwide. That's restaurants, bars, parks, museums, any sort of quirky place that you can find around cities and towns. Now, you might say that you have another app for that. Believe me, I've heard it. But no application takes its approach to recommendations quite like Foursquare does. And I think if you listen to my discussion with Chris today, you'll begin to understand why. Now, look, we've spoken about internationalization on the local maximum before. You know, way back in episode two, I interviewed Mariam Ali about the whole host of issues in internationalization and localization. Um, in that episode, we were talking about how to build apps that work in different languages and in different cultures and all sorts of the issues that come up. But you know, in that case, we were talking mostly about the text that appears in the app, text that we write, text that we call copy. So for example, there's a screen on our app Swarm with a uh, house of cards reference, a House of Cards joke. You know, they don't watch House of Cards in, in other countries, so got to change that. And also all the translations and stuff. But now today, we're expanding to talk about text that people write, you know, average everyday people like me and you, uh, that we have no control over. User-generated reviews. They're called Foursquare Tips. And now instead of a dozen languages... Well, we detect 97. So as you can imagine, you know, we needed some real firepower in natural language processing, natural language understanding, and we needed an engineering team to build out some of the logic that connects concepts, specifically what we call tastes, to other tastes and to languages around the world so that you have the best local experience wherever you go. Now, one of the main people providing that NLP and engineering firepower is Chris Conception. Chris originally studied computer science at Columbia, 
where he focused on natural language processing as he got his master's degree. Then he spent 14 years working for government contractors dealing with various AI and NLP problems. His last four and a half years have been at Foursquare. He maintains our language stack and uh, works on both our consumer and enterprise products. This, of course, includes our core venue search technology. So we're going to find out from Chris Conception today some background on NLP, some of the ways we interpret our Foursquare text, and maybe a glimpse of the secret sauce that is Foursquare Tastes. All right, Chris, welcome to the program. Welcome to the Local Maximum. (laughs) Thank you. I'm really glad to have you on the show today. Uh, We're going to talk about natural language processing, and we're going to talk about something that we have at Foursquare called Tastes, which... um, is a is a really cool system that I don't think is is anyone else has. It's, it's, it's really uncommon. Um, but let's let's start a little bit about natural language processing because your work in that goes back uh, quite a few years. So, so tell us, like, what initially got you interested in natural language processing, and also what is natural language processing? Let's define it. Sure. So. Um you know, a long time ago, back when I was an undergrad, um, you know, I was a computer science major and, you know, was taking all the, the generic uh, systems track uh, courses. Uh, but I had some friends uh, who ended up going uh, into, gra- into grad school for natural language processing who were like a year ahead of me. Um, and uh, like I was would work on pro- I was working on projects with them and they were explaining like, oh, yes, you know, we're going to work with uh, uh this professor at Columbia, her name is Kathy McEwen. Uh, she's, you know, a very well-respected person uh, in the field, uh, and they were going to go do their PhDs. And so, um, you know, I spent my senior year. I was like, oh, I should take, you know, let me take a class in this and see what's going on. Um, and that, you know, that really is what sparked the interest. Uh, I, you know, I also went went on to grad school, uh, and I also decided to study under Kathy. Uh, and so I was there for I was in grad school for two years, working. Uh, uh, in Kathy's NLP group and uh, ended up moving out to uh, DC, uh, taking on uh, like applied uh, research and development uh, jobs for the government, but using specifically like, working specifically within the the AI NLP uh, domain. Uh, so to, to, to more to the point of like, what, what, what does it mean when you say NLP? So NLP stands for natural language processing. Um, the idea behind it is that you have uh, electronic text and you want the computer to try to understand things about that text. Um, okay. So there are uh, any number of, of low-level things that you may want to know about the text, such as like what's the language it's written in, what's the script it's written in, uh, you know, what are the sentences within that uh, within that text? And then there are some there are higher level concepts that you would probably want a computer to try to take a stab at. As like, okay, you have a news story. Well, tell me what this news story summarize this news story for me. Or who are the who are the who are the people that are talked about in this news story? Uh, and so you really need to like like NLP corresponds to like a whole host of technologies, but it's really about like trying to make sense and understand electronic data. Right. And so when you were starting to get into NLP as an undergrad and as a grad student, were there any applications that you remember, you know, early on where you were like, wow, this is uh, this is really cool. This is a really powerful thing. Uh, like any, any programs that you saw through your advisor or through your classes or something like that? 
Certainly, the, uh, the 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 summarization work uh, that Kathy was doing back in the in the late mid to late nineties um, w- was really cool for me because it was just like wow, like I'd, I'd never seen because you know so we're talking it's like ninety five ninety six right yeah. uh, and you know like the the internet had just been born like I I was still using like the NCSA browser and and you know so like there just wasn't a lot I hadn't had a lot of exposure to to technology other than like. An Apple, an Apple IIe, and programming in BASIC, and and to be able to see like a program take you know a news story and produce you know a, you know a summary from you know of that news story was just mind blowing to me, and so that's that's really to me that was the, the first moment that I was just like wow this is this is really this, this is a really cool and interesting thing, uh, and I would like to know more about it. Yeah, it's I think I think it's a similar to me. Uh, when I got my interest in machine learning where it was like, okay, it's doing something where it's not immediately clear, you know, how, how I should be programming this. Like if I wanted to implement a spreadsheet program and I wanted to implement a formula, it's like, okay, I see how the formula maps to machine language. That's fine. But when it comes to summarizing text, it's just so open-ended. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it's it, when you think about how how a human does these things, like it's it seems very na- it, it seems very natural, right? Yeah. Like you're just reading the document and you kind of understand it. But like computers are such low level things. Like how do how do you tell a computer to you know understand and resolve things like pronouns and 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 th- you know th- things along those lines? So it's yeah. So there's a, there's two terms that I want to kind of disambiguate a little bit. There's natural language processing. And these days, uh, you see a lot of uh, people talking about natural language understanding, either when they're describing their technology or when they're describing their job. I mean, maybe it's a little bit of flourish Mm -hmm. sometimes. But what in your mind is the difference between when someone says they're doing natural language processing versus natural language Uh, understanding? Sure. And and again, NLP just is is this really large umbrella term. And it can refer, like, people, when people say NLP, they can be referring to anything along the lines of, like, machine translation or, uh, you know, ontology work. Or, or natural language understanding, and you know, by natural language understanding, uh, I'm I'm talking mainly about uh, understanding the high level concepts with uh, within the document, and this would involve things along the lines of like co-reference resolution, an Afro resolution, or named entity tagging. Like you just need to know, you need to be able to answer questions, you know, typically like the who, what, when, where, how, and why, um, and like you have to have, have you know like. NLU is, is focused on trying to be able to, to identify and, and, and fill in those questions. Is natural language understanding related to automatic translation at all? Because it seems like if you wanted to translate the text, it'd be helpful to understand it first. Or do are most translation systems like non-understanding? Well, so there's been a lot of work in, in machine translation. Um, when I first started in grad school, a lot of the work was focused on um, uh, using language models. Uh, so they were they were doing things along the lines of like, uh, you know, just lo- you know, looking for, for phrases and you know, looking at parallel corpora, taking phrases and trying to match, uh, ma- match them up and, and uh, you know, create a translation out of them using, uh, you know, frequently co-occurring uh, uh, n-grams across languages. Um, I think, I want to say like in the 2000s, things moved into like a, pure, a purely statistical uh, method where you had things like the Moses, uh, trans, I think it was just trans, transducer, I forget what that what it was called. Um, but uh, it 
basically was just a machine learned a machine learning algorithm that would treat the the parallel corpora as just bag words uh, and attempt to do the translations that way, uh, just purely off of math. Uh, and I believe like the, the state of the art these days uh, is probably a hybrid. I, I'm pretty sure Google Google Translate uses both um, language models and statistics on, on the back end to get to get theirs. Because again, you, you really want to be able to smooth those translations uh, at the end of the day so that they, they are human readable. That's, that was really the biggest complaint about uh, machine translation um, was that the the end translation was always so stilted and didn't sound right. very natural. You can, natural. you can get the gist of it yes, often, like, but, Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, if you wanted to make a respectable website, you know, <laughs> and you wanted it to be, you know, because oftentimes you go and you're like, oh, I know this is a translation. Yeah, thing, so, yeah. Um, yeah, and as we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, translation at Foursquare in a minute because um, we, we do have some interesting examples. But let's go back to our... Um, NLP pipeline at Foursquare because that's something that uh, we have a whole pipeline of of natural language processing that is done on all of the text that comes in for, through our consumer applications. So that's you know that's Swarm when you check into a place you add some text in Foursquare when you add uh, the city guide when you add tips to a place um, that's usually a few sentences of text and there's a lot of it and so we've done a lot of work on that. I think. I don't want to be presumptuous, but I think you and I have done the most work on the NLP pipeline of anyone in the company. Yeah, uh, it's probably been uh, a few years since I've touched it, but I think I remember it pretty well. Um, the culmination, almost the culmination of the pipeline. There's a lot of stuff we've we've talked about in the pipeline. Sentiment analysis, we've talked about on this program before. Episode three, I'll link back to that. Um, but one of the culminations is something called tastes that we have in Foursquare, and that's actually something that that uh, you, know, you can see in the final design of the app. So uh, tell us, what is a taste as you see it? When we were coming up with the, the concept of tastes, um, we really wanted to be able to um, produce a feature where we'd be able to encapsulate uh, what are the things that people actually talk about at a venue? Like, what are the specific things? What are these descriptions of things? Um, really, we want to be able to answer, like, fill in the blank of this place has X and where X is something that's very interesting uh, that we want to be able to surface to those users. And so at the end of the day, X most of the time turns into uh, a noun phrase. Um, and so for things like, um, uh, and so by a noun phrase, I mean, in English, I would mean like an adjective plus a noun. So an example would be a chicken sandwich, right? In, in that instance, right. the chicken sandwich. Some good, it's, good chicken sandwiches here in the right. city. There, there are, you know, but both words are nouns, but you can imagine that uh, people talk about spicy chicken sandwich. Spicy is an right. adjective, um, but that would also be considered a taste. Uh, one, things that, one of the things that we didn't want to get into were, were uh, tastes that had sentiment or so, so superlative adjectives were, were kind of thrown out. Like we didn't really care about great burgers. We cared about cheeseburgers. Right. We already handled great burgers on the sentiment side. Right. So we didn't want to deal with that. It's actually interesting. So before we had the taste system, we had something called SIPs, Statistically Improbable Phrases. That was in the version of Foursquare in 2018, which I implemented and um, basically would highlight text that a lot of people are talking about at a place. But it was totally ignorant of any of the part of speech or, or noun phrases or, or any of that. So it would, it, you know, yeah, it, literally it was, the, the highlight would be like, 
uh, it could say spicy chicken sandwich is great, and it would just be the highlight might be sandwich is great yep. or some or sandwich is. And I had to implement a lot of rules, like okay, don't end it with uh, a, a a verb or something like that. Like like is I, I banned the word is like things like that. There are all these rules which um, which sort of made it complicated. And so this was sort of the 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 clean version where we actually figured out what was going on at these places. And it was always fun to, like, I, I remember being online at the bagel shop and, like, looking over someone's shoulders and seeing them check the sips. Uh, hasn't happened too recently. <laughs> I wish, uh, yeah, I wish you'd see that more often. So, well, and, yeah. and, you know, honestly, like, sips made, the, sips were a good idea. And they, they, in fact, made it into tastes. Like, because, for instance, there was um, uh, an example of a sip that... Um, uh, that we ended up uh, turning into a taste was uh, something along the lines of, uh, I think there was like a bowling alley okay. where uh, like a bunch of the tips were talking about Joe the bartender. Uh, and like the sip was Joe the bartender. Right. Uh, and while like we would never want to create a Joe the bartender taste because it's right. not it's not an actual thing. It's not the, a thing that you can like. It's not a thing that you can like. It's not a thing that actually would exist on any other venue besides this one particular Yeah, because usually when you like a taste, it's like, I like Joe the Bartender. I want to uh, visit other places with Joe the Bartender. Right. Like that, unless he works at several <laughs> places, it's not going to work out. Right. So what we ended up doing was we took all the sips that were found um, and we smoothed those down using uh, the, the parts of, you know, the part of speech tags uh, within the, the tips to figure out what the noun phrase uh, was for, within the sip. Uh, and then would turn the sip, turn that sip into something we call a sip taste. And so the sip tastes actually made them made their way into they, they appear as tastes, but on the back end they're they're not on, in the ontology uh, in any way. All right, so let's go through real quickly how we generate those tastes. Now you can do some self personalization in Foursquare uh, and Marsbot, by the way, by telling it which tastes you like. Uh, Marsbot is down this week, by the way. Maybe by the time we'll, we'll get it back up uh, by the time by the time it's in. Did you know this? Marsbot is down. Oh no! Oh, it's terrible. I'll, we'll get it back up. <laughs> it's uh, the credit card we were using for uh, uh, Twilio um, expired. Oh, it's always money. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, my code is fine. I was able to go into my. Um, my script and figure out what it was in like 30 minutes. So I just did that actually before this. Anyway, where were we? <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to include that in. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so yes, you could tell our city guide, which tastes you like, and, and we make it personalized, but the trick is figuring out which places have which tastes. So maybe you could take us through uh, kind of the different steps of the pipeline and how we go from Raw text to the tastes. Sure. So there, there, there's actually like a two two phase process here. So the first phase um, when we were developing this was we had to pull the tastes out and actually make an ontology of all of the tastes that existed within a given language. Uh, because we, you know, Foursquare supports I think it's like eleven or twelve different languages, and each of those languages would have their own specific taste model. Um, and then, you know, the, the idea was like, how do we, how do we actually figure out what the, what the tastes are in each of these languages? So what we ended up doing was, uh, making use of the, uh, part of speech tags and the shallow parser, uh, that, 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 you know, we put into place within the NLP stack, we're able to find instances of noun phrases that occurred, you know, within a, you know, above a certain threshold, uh, within the, that language's corpus of tips. Uh, and if we saw it, happen frequently enough, we would then uh, flag it as a candidate taste, 
Uh, and then we would have uh, Crowdflower users that they would take instructions. So like we would have a, a whole host of instructions as to what is a taste and what isn't a taste. Uh, and we would give them, you know, examples of, of the t- of the text within a tip. And they would go through and say yes or no to uh, whether or not th- these strings were tastes or not. Uh, and <clears throat> so that's how we, we bootstrapped the system for all of the languages, um, the, the, the tastes within the languages. Once we actually have all the, the, the tastes flagged and put into an ontology, and we can talk, we'll talk about the ontology later. Yeah. Um, the, the, the next step then is to take take all of those tastes and then rip over all of the text that we have and flag the tastes you know that th- that have been approved uh within those te- within that text uh so that, so that you know that you know a tip that's talking about the bacon cheeseburger you'll have the appropriate bacon cheeseburger taste so a taste id associated with that particular tip and then uh you can associate that taste id with the venue as well and that helps uh explore like our our search functionality be able to you know pull back the appropriate uh venues based off of the uh the tastes that uh that are attached to them i just remember that i I remember thinking about this. Did we ever do something where you mentioned, like people mentioned that a place doesn't have something? I remember we, we had do. Some... We there is there is some negation logic uh, within yeah. there. So we we actually, um, I believe that's sophisticated. People don't realize this. If I say this place has no Wi-Fi, we're actually smart enough sometimes to to know what that yeah. means. Uh, so what what ends up happening under the hood is that um, every taste that's associated with a, with a venue has an affinity score to that venue. Um, in the event that a um, a taste has been negated <clears throat> within the with, uh, within the tip, uh, that affinity score uh, is is negated is, as well. And so if if you have a bunch of people saying, "Oh, there's there you know there's no coffee here or there's no Wi-Fi mm-hmm. here," uh, we would know that we would have a negative affinity of coffee and Wi-Fi to a particular venue because we knew that people were saying that it, that it actually wasn't there. Yeah, yeah. So. There were a few challenges when we were building up this pipeline. Uh, one was language detection, which was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be, mainly because our texts were so short. But um, another one that, that you've mentioned before is uh, Turkish as a language is sort of hard, um, particularly in, is it tokenization or normalization? Uh, tell us what was the issue we ran around that, because we do have a lot of Turkish users. Sure. Uh, Turkish, Turkish is a very challenging language. Um, the, the, main, the main reason it's challenging is that there just isn't a lot of data, it, it, you know, not, not a lot of tag data, marked up data uh, to train models off of. Um, the other problem with Turkish is that it's what's called an, it's what is called an agglutinative language. Uh, what that means is that you have a base word, and you can have any number of suffixes that then can be attached to that word, which will then add uh, you know additional uh, uh, context to that word. Uh, so what you could end up happening is a base word with like six different uh, suffixes attached to it that basically translate would translate into almost a complete sentence by itself, mm. uh, and so. Any sort of morphological analyzer that's going to attack uh, an agglutinative uh, language needs to be able to pick those suffixes off uh, in a smart way and also be able to understand what those act- what those suffixes are actually doing to the base words. Uh, and so Turkish is, I think, the, the, probably the hardest language that we actually technically support, mainly because it is, like, it is so morphologically rich. Uh, and so what we ended up having to do was uh, I basically we'd have to make some I had to I had to make some tough choices because we didn't have a lot of uh, uh, of uh, marked up data uh, to, to train models off of. So we basically just right. take we took a morphological dictionary on the back end. Uh, and because we really only cared about noun phrases, uh, we were really bi- we biased the dictionary. We, we biased the dictionary to uh, find nouns more so than verbs or or uh, 
um, uh, you know, or, or adverbs or things along right. those lines. Right. We didn't have to build an entire, uh, you know, grammatical parser or an entire NLU system, really. For, yeah. For but, uh, again, like a, a lot of the most of the time, the things that we cared about were noun phrases. Right. Uh, and in that instance, what we really wanted to be able to do is, given some text, we want to be able to find the nouns within that text. A lot of times those nouns could be talking about, you know, person names, and that's fine as long as we're able to identify that. Uh, in English, you know, you're able to, to pick apart uh, uh, proper names by, by capitalization. Uh, I think capitalization also happens uh, within Turkish as well. So it's, I think those, those are, you know, good ways of being able to, mar- to mark that up. And I believe the dictionary actually does a good job of, of marking up what it thinks are, are uh, proper nouns uh, as well. Yeah. So you have listed uh, here, you sent me a list of other uh, issues that we came across uh insofar as language detection and tokenization. Um, tell me what, what's, what some of those were. Oh, sure. So, I mean, tokenization, typically you can think in English, like making tokens in English is for the most part really easy, right? Like we have- A token we, is a word. A word, is, yeah, right, exactly. A token is a word. Although that's not always the, true within English hmm. because you can think of uh, contractions, right? Like oh, you have, okay. yeah. uh, you know, D-O-N apostrophe T, that's actually two words. And so when you tokenize that, what should you do? Should it be do and then N apostrophe T is two separate tokens? Should it be a single token? Because it is a single word, but it, it, it conceptually represents two, you know, uh, like two words. Um, like these are all choices that have to be made by the, by, you know, by the tokenizer. Um, so, uh, but again, like tokenization becomes more of a problem when you don't actually have those word boundaries. And so a language like Chinese, uh, like it's a, it's an open research problem on doing word segmentation within Chinese because there are no word boundaries. And in fact, it's up to the, the, the human reader to take, you know, a sequence of string, a, a sequence of characters and be able to segment where the word boundaries actually, actually exist within that string. Uh, humans are able to do it. Machines, it's a harder thing for machines to be able to do. Right, right. Certainly a lot harder than English. Um, and then also we had have some language detection problems. Yeah. Um, you talk here about Russian versus Ukrainian. Yep. Or, yeah. Uh, so, so language detection, it, for the most part, it's really good. Like the, the like Google has uh, what's called, I think, the Chrome language detector. I think they're on the version maybe two, maybe even three. I'm not even sure. I think it's two that they're up to. Um, and like they get like 90 something percent, 95, 96 percent accuracy uh, for language detection. But the, the, the trick there is that a lot of these language detectors use uh, what's called a, tri- a trigram model. Like they're basically just looking at three characters at a time uh, and then figuring out how often you see those three characters within a given language based off of the back off of the, the, the training data that you have. Um, and so a lot of times you're, you're performing this language detection on large pieces of text, like a news article or something along those lines. Like the, the, right. the challenge that we have at Foursquare is that people don't people can sometimes not write very long tips or and specifically for shouts. Like, for instance, if you were to check into a, uh, you know, a Mexican restaurant and you were to just say tacos like that word by itself is is both a Spanish word and it's an English it's a loan word that, that exists within English. So how right. how should you actually mark that uh, you know for uh, you know for language purpose for language detection purposes? Yeah, there's some ambiguity there. And also so we supplement those character engrams with dictionaries, right? So uh, yeah, so what, what the what we actually and so we, we we did that for a while. Uh, and if you recall, we actually had the problem of um, uh, tips that were in multiple languages uh, oh, yeah, were, yeah. were causing um, 
you know, English, demonstrably uh, like Hebrew tips to be marked as English because because, because the, 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 yeah. the 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 text that we or the, the the training data that we had we were marking up a tip or several tips that had both English and Hebrew in it uh, as English and so anytime it would see Hebrew characters that that dictionary uh, tool was yeah saying, and they would put it in the yes in the yeah so what what we end up doing now is um, on a for every user. We actually create a, a, a user's uh, a language model on a per user basis based off of the data that they actually produce. Yeah, I the one example that came up today that was challenging because we went to a, um, somebody was talking about um, NLP in Arabic, and a few years ago I remember we were detecting languages of tips, and we like to see how many tips we have in how many languages, and we noticed you know hey there's a bunch of tips that are tagged as Somali in our set. And I, I was very skeptical of that. Um, you know, we do have uh, Foursquare tips in Somalia. Uh, you can go to restaurants in Somalia and get Foursquare <laughs> tips, but they're not in Somali. They're either in English or Arabic or something. Um, it turned out that um, tips that were Arabic transliterated into Latin characters were being marked as Somali. Yeah. So that was a really interesting issue. Um, another yeah. one I see here is Galician, which I don't think there are any tips um, in that language. But yeah. but, but it's to, but the so. idea is that like it's a, based off of the training data of the language detector. Like Galician and Portuguese are very very similar to each mm. other, and so when you have short short Portuguese text, it can look very similar to Galician, and so that's why we would end up having a lot of uh, tips being marked as Galician when in reality they were just Portuguese. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's get back to tastes because tastes, they form an ontology. Sometimes I call it a lattice. It's not really a lattice. A lattice is something that you can and and or, but oftentimes you can, you know, take, we have super tastes, we have subtastes. So tell us about the different relationships between the tastes. Sure. Uh, there, there are two main relationships in the, in the ontology. Uh, we have what's called an equivalence uh, and we have what's called an implication. Equivalences are for things like um, cheeseburger with no space and cheese space burger. Like you would want right. those two to be morally equivalent to each other. Uh, in fact, we, we would pick a canonical version of that. And I believe it's uh, actually cheeseburger with no space. Uh, I think is is the canonical version of that taste, um, and you know so everything that that is that has an equivalence relationship uh, can be tagged within the, within the tips based off of how that how they appear, uh, but they would be marked with the the canonical version of the taste. Um, another example of equivalence that isn't necessarily just a, like a typo or, or or spacing would be shrimps and shrimp and prawns. Uh, they both, you know, they're two words that that refer to this in English refer to the same thing. Uh, and so we would have you would want them to you know conceptually be marked with the same taste ID such that when you were to search for shrimp, uh, if you had a venue where people were only talking about prawns, you would still be able to get that get that venue back. So I think for uh, those in my audience who are mathematically inclined, we can say maybe lattice was too much. I want to say partially ordered set, right? So you have you have sub items and you have well a super item is just the reverse of a, of a sub item and it's transitive right meaning that you have um, bacon cheeseburger implies cheeseburger implies burger or you know bacon cheeseburger implies cheeseburger 
cheeseburger implies burger. Therefore, a bacon cheeseburger implies burger. Am I getting that yes, right? Yes, that, 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 that <laughs> is absolutely correct. So like in, in, in the instances where the impl- – and so that's that you're talking about the actual implication relationship. Yeah. Uh, and yes, that is, that is 100% correct. Um, we actually have um, – the, the, you know, the implications are, are, you know, so you were talking about more of a, like a subphrase analysis uh, yeah. in that instance. So bacon cheeseburger. Uh, sh- so the bacon cheeseburger taste would also imply bacon. It would imply mm-hmm. cheese. It would imply cheeseburger. Um, like all of those things, all of those things, uh, uh, subfra- all those subphrase components with of bacon cheeseburger are first class tastes. And so they would all be implied. Um but you also have more like higher concept uh, implications. So things like uh, French toast is implying breakfast. Uh, those are harder. Like, a lot of like the subphrase uh, implications can be found automatically. Um, the you know the higher level ones we had to do a little bit of extra work on uh, you know along that. To... Was that uh, again crowd flower? <clears throat> Uh, well, we know. So what ended up happening was we made use of a lot of the uh, menu. Of, is, oh. is, is the menu data that we have. Yeah. So we have, you know, structure within the menus such that we know when uh, things are labeled under breakfast or lunch or dinner. So for definitely for the mealtime intentions, we were able to populate the implications based off of the mealtime intentions using the menus. So if we saw a taste appearing in the section of the, the breakfast section enough times, we were able to automatically propose that French toast should imply breakfast. And we would then have a, a human be able to go through and just say yes or no to, to the proposal. Uh, and that, that human was on our side. So that was like a, an, we had, I think we had interns going through that or we are, the PMs themselves would uh, would do that, right? And now tell me about uh, the egg roll problem because <sighs> this is you know there's always something in NLP. Anything you do in NLP, there's always something, right? Yes, <laughs> there is always something. So uh, as I mentioned, you know you can automatically do those those uh, subphrase um, uh, implications. Uh, and for the bacon cheeseburger example, it works. Bacon cheeseburger does imply bacon. It implies cheese and it implies burger. Like all of those things are, 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 are present. However, if you have a taste like egg roll, egg roll should not imply egg, nor should it imply rolls. Rolls would be, you know, things like sushi rolls. Uh, eggs are, you know, just not a part of an egg roll. And so we would have to, you know, we, we, we would find these, these, you know, crazy cases uh, as, you know, like the... Implica- the, 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 those implications were just, I think, automatically ingested, and then we would see these crazy results in the in the beta version that or the internal version of, of the app that, that we were using. Uh, another fun example was, um, uh, well, another issue is homonyms. Homonyms also okay. uh, posed a, a particular challenge. So you had things like uh, wings, for instance. Uh, when we were thinking of wings, when we made the taste wings, we were talking about chicken wings. Yeah, uh, of and course. The the what ended up happening was we you know we were like okay wings are wings are a taste get it in there get it tagged uh, and then we found that the best places to go for wings were museums because yeah. people keep talking about the art wing or the the, the uh, you know the statue wing uh, and so we had to blacklist we had to do category blacklists of uh, museums for for that particular taste because you just you know it's it's the same word it just means you know, has a different word sense. Yeah, I think we had a problem in Marsbot when there was like, hey, welcome to Central Parks. Try the trails. Yum. <laughs> actually, I don't think – actually, that wasn't a taste problem. That was more like it was just being tagged as food, uh, so maybe not relevant. Um, okay, so all of this is great for a single language. You could do this. You could copy this over for any language you want. But we decided to go one step further and start making connections between the tastes graphs of the multiple languages. So 
why did we decide to do this? Um, what sort of um, uh, features were we building into our recommendation that made us decide to do this? And then we'll get into what the challenges were. Sure. Uh, so there's there's a whole field of research uh, around uh, cross-language information retrieval. Uh, and that's really what we're talking about here when we were uh, applying these uh, taste translations is that uh, when people were, were doing searches, uh, they were absolutely making use of the of the, the taste ontology that existed for the language that they were in. But you really, you know, in the instance of you, Max, you're, you know, an English speaker and you let's say you go to Japan um, and, you know, you type in, OK, I really want curry. So let me let me let me search for some curry. Uh, and you would get what I would call the tourist experience within Foursquare because the the results that you would get before we had uh, these taste translation links is you would find tips that English users wrote about curry at various places. What you would not have access to would be all of the Japanese users who've written tips in Japanese about curry, uh, and you just would, would have no access to uh, to that at all. Uh, and so once we actually have these uh, the, the you know the the these uh, translation links in place. Uh, we're able to walk across that graph and be able to, you know, increase the recall with which we're able to give uh, search results for. So if you were to go to Santiago, Chile, for example, and search for lamb, you know, in, in, the, in the old world, you would have gotten maybe three or four, um, uh, three, three or four results. Uh, in the new world, you search for lamb, you also you search for the English lamb, but then you also translate, you know, you get the translation and you know to look for Cordero. Uh, within uh, Santiago, and you get you know 60, 70 different results, uh, all of which are it's just a better experience for the user at the end of the day. Yeah, I've experienced this personally, you know, when traveling uh, abroad, and I can and I think uh, Mexico was a very good example uh, where you know other recommender systems, other city guides would just return the tourist venues. But Foursquare, uh, Foursquare would find kind of the local favorites that you're often looking for, and it would do a very good job. People would be, uh, people are are shocked. I, I don't know why people are so skeptical of me when I say, well, let's use Foursquare. But uh, when I show them where Foursquare is, is pointing them, it, 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 never, it, it, it never embarrasses me. Um, so... Let's talk about doing these taste translations because that's not that's not always so easy, right? You think you have okay, your taste graph in English, your taste graph in Spanish, one-to-one -one matching, right? Well, I mean, language is hard, um, and you don't always have a, you know an exact one-to-one -one match on on those tastes. That's one of the, one of one of the problems that we ran into was um, trying to, to to do that resolution uh, across languages. So for the the example that that came to mind uh, when we were talking about this before. Uh, is in Indonesian, uh, they don't really have a word for bread other than roti. Uh, like they just they, they they use the word roti to reference to to refer to actual roti or actual you know white Wait, bread. So what is roti? I don't even know what that is. Uh, so roti is an Indonesian in Indonesian. It's the Indonesian word for bread. Okay. Uh, so uh, roti but, uh, there's like roti kanai. There is and, and like it, the Caribbean but, but has things. You're called saying roti. it's something else also besides bread. Uh, well, no, it, 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 I mean, yes, there, so there's a, there's a thing called roti. Like if we were to open up Google and, and search for roti, you would see like a flatbread, 
that, that you would oh, that you would break a, apart and, okay. and dip in, in and dip in sauce with an Indonesian. I see. Um, but uh, here in 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 any well, not even just here, just in English, you would actually call that type of bread roti uh, versus like sliced bread, sliced white bread would just be called. I bread. see. So it's actually a particular kind of bread in English, but they don't make a distinction. Right. There's no there's no distinction on their side. Okay. And so then you know the question became, okay, how do we actually go about you know referring to bread you know in 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 indonesian uh, i think what we ended up select uh, selecting was we went with the local uh like the typical local uh, version of roti um and and just mapping that to uh the english version which was just the the, uh, the english roti and so like i don't think there actually is a link uh between Indone- indonesian uh, I, don't, I don't think there's a link between uh english bread and uh, anything in in in, in indonesian Yes, that's really interesting. I, I'm always interested to see examples of that. Maybe uh, we could put together a few for the show notes page. Uh, uh, sure. A few. Yeah, okay. Um, because understanding which languages have gaps or which languages have things that go together in one that don't necessarily go together in another, that, um, that's actually really interesting. Maybe like five years ago, I read this book called uh, Through the Language Glass, which maybe I'll put in the... Uh, in the show notes, uh, which talks about this, where certain languages, you could almost express anything in any language ultimately, but certain languages kind of force you to express more than you need. Yep. Uh, so for instance, I, th- I think uh, uh, in English, pepper uh, it, like, is really the only word that we have versus in Spanish, I think there was like three, four or five different kinds of pepper, right. four or five different words that could be used for pepper, and they meant slightly different things, right. uh, and we didn't want, didn't necessarily want to equivalence those together, but it's just like, what do you translate them to? Like, you would just translate them all to pepper at the end of the day, even though they actually mean different things, hmm. you know, within the local language. So it's, it's not just a... a you know, a, a problem for Indonesian. It's a problem within English as well. I mean, it's it's a problem yeah. for every language. Like the, the, you're going to have you're going to have concepts that are just uh, you know underspecified um, that another language just has more words for. Yeah, yeah. I've learned a, a whole lot about languages and different cultures and different you know you know all all the different intricacies that goes into this just by examining this system. So it's really been fascinating. Um, All right, that's it for today. Uh, This is the part of the program where I let you plug anything you want. So do you have a website or a Twitter account or anything that you would like to send people to? (laughs) Uh, I'm real boring. Uh, All I really have is my Twitter account, but like you should only follow me if you want to listen to, if you want to see me make, you know, jokes about, uh, you know, politics or, (laughs) or, or technology or, uh, yeah, like I, I don't, I don't, I don't. That's like I, half the people listening to this show. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I don't, I don't have, a, I don't have a podcast or, or you know, any, anything that I'm trying to to, to hawk on people. All right, so. It's uh, it's KJC nine. Yes. All right, folks, remember that's KJC nine at KJC nine. If you want to follow Chris Conception on Twitter, um, his Twitter account's pretty entertaining. I think you know, he doesn't he shouldn't sell himself short. Um, I also noticed that when I was recording this, yes, Marsbot was down, unfortunately, but we have successfully brought Marsbot back to life. What is Marsbot, you asked? I may have covered it on the program uh, once or twice before, but Marsbot is Foursquare's kind of experimental app. It's an app that chats with you. You chat with it. It knows where you go, and it looks out for your interests, um, and it sort of tells you uh, it gives you little pieces of information as you move about the city or your hometown or when you're traveling. Um, and by the way, Marsbot does use taste. It makes very uh, 
very extensive use of tastes, in fact. Um, so if you download MarsBot, you know, every time you go into a restaurant or a bar, it'll tell you what to order. Uh, one time I was traveling in San Diego, and it told me to get, I believe, the English muffin, and I was like, I'm not so sure. And then they told me, well, uh, there's a regular bread that comes with this, or it's the English muffin. I'm like, well, I got to go with that. And you know what? It was delicious. It really was. Okay, so MarsBot will, you know, it'll make your life a little bit better, uh, as you go and give give it a try, and it also asks you, you know, on the first day, um, to list some tastes that uh, that you might like, so it knows how to personalize everything. Now we got some shows, uh, some good shows planned out next week. You're going to listen to my conversation with Christian Hubs, who's the host of Artificially Intelligent. He's appeared, I've appeared on his program. Uh, he was appeared on on the local maximum uh, for a few minutes in the past, just to describe uh, what his program was is on and to kind of tease out uh, my appearance. But I'm going to talk to him about everything that he's covered and learned about artificial intelligence on Artificially Intelligent on his podcast. Or, well, maybe not everything he covered, but uh, quite a bit. We're going to talk about how AI is going to uh, you know, affect how we work, which industries are going to be disrupted, and um, some thoughts on what the long-term implications of AI are. So a very interesting discussion, and um, you'll be listening to that next week. Now, another topic that I want to cover, and we kind of uh, got into this very uh, briefly last week, was the Twitter bot purge. I know that a lot of you who are on Twitter have noticed that uh, they've been uh, removing a lot of bots. You might have noticed that you lost some followers. I didn't lose any followers, but uh, some people I know have said that they did. So um, I, I do want to talk about this um, maybe in two weeks from now, maybe a little bit after that. Uh, is it working for you? Um, are, are you having a better experience? Is it annoying? Is it is it disrupting you in any way? Let me know. Localmaxradio at gmail.com. I'd like to know uh, your opinion and, and your feedback on, on this issue as uh, as I cover it, because this is a very um, difficult and, uh, and I guess, long-range sort of <laughs> play by Twitter, and it's kind of a, a never-ending battle that they are fighting against the, uh, the so-called bot armies. That's what's coming up in the next few weeks. Have a great week, everyone, and uh, listen next week for The Local Maximum. Have a great week. That's the show. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. This show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you want to keep up, remember to follow The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at MaxClock. Have a great week. Feel the power. Don't care what you say You're gonna say